0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is Genesis
1: 4, verses 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden.
0: Okay, you can be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. You can open to Genesis chapter 4. There are Bibles that are under some of the chairs. So if you don't have a Bible with you today, you can feel free to take that one and uh, open up to Genesis chapter 4. So January 28, 1986, the Challenger space shuttle exploded 73 seconds after the launch, killing all seven crew members. Many of you remember this. If you're older than me, you probably remember this quite vividly. If you're younger than me, you probably don't. You've probably only seen pictures. But this picture has been burned in the minds of Americans for quite some time. They said that 75% of Americans knew what had happened within one hour. Because this thing was live casted in schoolrooms and, and across the country. And so this, this massive traumatic event in American life happened. And it's fascinating as you think through what happened, there was an O-ring gasket on the right rocket booster, let me see if I can get that right, an O-ring gasket on the right rocket booster that became brittle in the cool 31 degree temperature. If the temperature had been 10 degrees higher, that gasket would not have failed, that O-ring would not have failed. And that small little mechanical failure turned into a massively expensive in life, um, expensive um, cost in life a deadly disaster and uh, what we what we have in Genesis so far is that we have this one minor piece of fruit this what seemingly insignificant um, sin this minor failure is now we're in the process of seeing it creating a deadly explosion a deadly explosion in human lives and in tragedy that we're going to see in this in, in the coming sermons Uh, We've been going through the book of Genesis, our beginning series. We've been looking at how God created the world, what it was meant to be like, and where things went wrong. In Genesis 1, we see this great, majestic, and glorious God who made a phenomenal universe that is so finely tuned and intricate and beautiful and glorious. He created human beings in His own image, male and female. He created them to know Him, to relate to Him, to represent Him in the world, to obey Him, to follow Him. And in Genesis 2, we, we get this zooming in, and, and when he created this Adam, this, this man and this woman, to image him in the world, to follow him, to know him, to love him, to worship him, in this big cosmic temple, um, we see that God took such care in how he created them, and what he made the man for, and what he made the woman for, and why he put them together, and what he intends for them to do. We see so many glorious things in Genesis 1 and 2, about who God is, what he's made, who humanity is, and what humanity is made to do. And we had eight sermons looking at those first two chapters, just looking at the glory of God and the goodness of his creation. And now we're in the, in the third of what will be eight sermons in Genesis 3 through 11 of looking at how it all fell apart, how the O-ring failed, this small little bite of a piece of fruit, this small, seemingly small disobedience is now creating a massive explosion of tragedy. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit at the suggestion and deception of the serpent. They were confronted by God, driven from the garden as a consequence, but given, even in that consequence, a promise. That there would be a seed of a woman that would crush the head of the serpent. That there would be one who would come, who would have the ability and the will to make things right. To undo the curse that God put on Adam and Eve and all humanity because of disobedience. The curse would one day be lifted. And so that's really the context coming into Genesis chapter 4 is that God very very much should have just eliminated the whole creation at that point. It's corrupted. It's turned against Him. He would have every right to just obliterate it and be done, but He doesn't. He sets in motion a plan, and He gives grace even while He gives consequences to Adam and Eve. And it is, it is this promise that there will be one day one born of woman who will be able to undo the curse, who will be able to crush the head of the serpent And that is the anticipation that leads us into Genesis chapter 4, that this promised one is going to come, that there is going to be Toledot, there is going to be generations, there is going to be offspring, there is hope, even in the midst of sin and destruction and curse and failure. And so I want to give you just an outline of the 16 verses that we'll look at in Genesis chapter 4. And we'll walk through this outline, and then I'm going to answer three questions, and then give you three takeaways, okay? So we'll walk through this outline, then answer three questions and give you three takeaways from this text. So here we see uh, uh, what's a chiastic structure. Hebrew, this this text was originally written in ancient Hebrew. And there's a chiastic structure, which means that the center point is kind of the main point of the text, but then it works its way out. It's like climbing a mountain and coming back down. And so what we have in verses 1 and 2 is we have two sons gained. Then in verses 3 and 5, these two sons are worshiping. And then out of that is a warning from God for Cain in verses 6 and 7. Cain murders his brother in verse 8. And then God has another conversation of confrontation with Cain in verses 9 and 10. And then a curse from God. Ultimately, these two sons are both lost. And so, so just think for a moment as we enter kind of into this really tragic story of the anticipation that is coming. Adam and Eve have been driven from the garden. They feel the weight of the curse, but yet there's still promise. In fact, Adam named his wife Eve, which is the mother of the living. So they came out of the garden, definitely feeling the weight and the consequences, but also understanding that God has been gracious. And Adam named his wife Eve because there's still hope for humanity. There is still going to be an offspring. God's plan may still include them. And so that brings us into chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Look at this. Now, Adam knew, wife, or knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Now, think of the delight of Eve. She was, she was in a sense, the first human to fall. She, you imagine the guilt and the shame, but yet there's this hopeful promise. And then, all of a sudden, she's pregnant, and she gives birth to a son. And look at what she says. She gives praise to God. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. He gives no credit to Adam at all. (laughs) Adam was no help in bringing this baby into the world. But God was. God was helpful. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And I think in the back of her mind is this promise that there will be a seed of a woman that will crush the serpent. And so there's this hopeful anticipation that God maybe is keeping his promise right here and now. And she gives God praise. And the way that she talks about getting a man, she's talking about, I have created a man. I have begotten a man. And she's rejoicing in the fact that she, uniquely as a woman, has some creative ability. She, like God, can create new image bearers. And so she's praising God for his work in her and the unique ability that she has as a woman to bring forth new image bearers. And she's delighting in that. And she names him Cain, the Hebrew word Kayan. Is what his name is based on, and it means acquired or created one, kind of like a, a new Adam, the promised one, a seed, a, a delightful one, a created. I've acquired, I've produced, the acquired and created one. And then she has another son named Abel, and this is based off the Hebrew word hevel, which, if you have gone through the study of Ecclesiastes, you know that hevel means meaningless. So Abel is the insignificant one. Cain is the significant one. He's the begotten one, the gifted one, the the one that uh, that has been given by God. And Abel is the insignificant one, the Hevel one, the substanceless one, the vapor. And it's interesting, just even in their names, the anticipation that is coming. That yes, maybe Cain is the one. Maybe Cain is the one that can make these things right. And then there's Hevel. There's Abel who is, eh, we'll see what, what becomes of this one. Cain works the ground, Abel works with the animals, and we have these first two vocations of working the ground, keeping the animals. And so the, the, um, the mandate of God to, to tend the earth and to fill it is still in process. Their sin hasn't totally wiped out the plan of God for them. Then that comes to worship. verse Chapter 4, verses 3 and 5 In the course of time, you've got these two sons, these two brothers, this hopeful anticipation that maybe this is it, maybe this is the fulfillment of the promise. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn, of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So here's the context. They're both coming in worship. There's no instructions at this point about what kind of sacrifices they're to offer. We just don't have that recorded. But they're both responding. They're both coming to God, offering a worship, acknowledging Yahweh as God, acknowledging their dependence on Him, at least in some regard. And what happens is, is that God has regard for Abel and his offering, which means God is pleased with it. God receives it, God receives the offering. And notice that, the off, that it says that he had regard for Abel and his offering. It had to do with Abel. God was accepting Abel and his person. It wasn't about the offering. It was about the person behind the offering. And so he's receiving Abel and his offering. The heart behind Abel's offering is acceptable to God. And for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. It wasn't necessarily about the offering. It was about the heart behind the offering offering. And God was not accepting Cain's offering because of Cain's heart behind his offering. There's no indication of how they knew whether God, re- whether God regarded their offering or not. We don't know if there was like kind of a, uh, it, it burst into flames, God received it by fire. We don't know if it like floated up to the heavens. We don't know if God gave a big giant Facebook thumbs up over one offering. And well, they don't have the down anymore in Facebook, but the down thumbs down on Cain's. We don't know and we don't need to know. The point is, is that they knew it was very obvious that God received the heartful worship, the heart of worship from Abel, and did not receive Cain and his offering. And then we have a warning in verses six and seven because Cain is furious. Which it turns out God was right, because a right heart of God, a right heart for God, Cain would have been repentant. But Cain is angry. And so the Lord said to Cain, verses 6 and 7, gives him a warning. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you and you must rule over it. And here's what we have is that Cain's emotions reveal his heart. Cain's emotions reveal his heart. He came to God on his own terms and not God's. And now he's mad that God is not going to play that game. Cain is coming for something other than the pleasure of God. And God's like, I'm not doing this. You don't get to come to me on your terms. You come to me on my terms. And you know this, Cain. And you're getting exposed. And now you're angry at your brother. And at the confrontation of, a, of Cain, there's no acknowledgement that he's done any wrong. There's no confession, No repentance. And the correction of God is rebuffed. There's a gracious offer from God here. It's like, hey, if you will come to me with a right heart, I will accept you. God is coming down and very carefully, kindly explaining the situation to Cain, giving him an offer to turn around, and then warning him of like, hey, you're on dangerous ground here. It's almost like God gets down and looks Cain in the eye. He just stoops down and goes, Cain, my dear Cain. And gives him an interpretation of the of the situation, and he's like, "There's two paths in front of you here, and if you will turn to me, turn your heart to me, I will accept you." And then he warns him. He says, "Cain, your heart is the problem. Temptation is like a predator crouching at the door." He says. He says, "If you do well, will you not be accepted?" Verse uh, verse. Seven, middle of verse 7 and if you do not do well sin as crouching at the door of your heart its desire is contrary to you and you must rule over it there, there, your sin your heart is in the balances here you're at a crossroads Cain and you're going to decide which voice you listen to my voice or the voice of the predator who has a desire to take you out Temptation is like a predator crouching at the door. It's not on the outside of him like Adam and Eve with the with the snake coiled in the tree. No, 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 this is your own anger. This is the problem. We've gone from temptation and sin being outside of the human beings to now Adam and Eve have born two sons and the temptation is inside them. The predator of sin is in his heart and it's being shown in his emotions. This proverbial snake is coiled and ready to strike, and now it's on the inside of him. The word crouching, robes, in Hebrew, has a related term in Akkadian for demon. In fact, the Jewish Publication Society's Torah of this verse says this, sin is the demon at the door. It's crouching at the door. Your anger is an indication of, That there is a demon at the door that wants to devour you. Cain, what will you do with this sin? This is such a grace of God. Because he didn't do this with Adam and Eve. When they were sinning, it wasn't like God got down on his hands and knees and looked at them and said, Hey, don't eat the fruit of the serpent. Don't listen to his words. Don't, Don't do it. And here he does with Cain. He's looking God in the face, trying to decide who, which direction he's going to go. Is he going to follow his heart or is he going to follow the word of God? And in verse 8, we get the answer. Cain spoke to his, Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain and his brother Abel and killed him. Think of all the promise that we had. Think of Eve's joy of having a son. Abel, precious Abel, the one that God helped me beget, bring into the world the first child. Maybe the fulfillment of the promise. Maybe the one that would crush the head of the evil one. And he ends up crushing the head of his righteous brother. A premeditated act, he spoke to Abel, his brother, and then led them out into the field where he would have no witnesses rose up, killed his brother. So the seed of the woman, the first seed of the woman, in fact, does crush a head. It's the head of his righteous brother because his brother's righteous. Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3, grace and kindness from God and giving two sons. And now one son kills another. And it feels like the serpent is now two for two. Took down Adam and Eve, two sons are born took them down too. sin is ruling and reigning the o-ring has failed and the whole thing is up in flames and so we have a confrontation verses 9 and 10 then the lord said to cain where is your is abel your brother he said i don't know am i my brother's keeper and the lord said what have you done The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the Lord. This is just like Genesis 3, where God now comes and confronts the the sinners. And he does so with questions, right? He did that in the Garden of Eden. Where are you? Except now it's, where's your brother? And Cain just flat out lies. At least Adam and Eve acknowledged their sin. They blamed others. But at least they acknowledged it. Yes, I did eat, but it was the woman and a serpent. It's their fault. Cain's just like, just so brash before God. Cain outright denies his sin. I don't know where my brother is. He lies. And he sarcastically mocks God. says, I don't know. And am I my brother's keeper? He's not my problem. The word keeper there is the same word that is used of Abel being a keeper of the sheep. Am I my brother's shepherd? Am I supposed to protect him? He's he's not my problem. God, he's your problem. You keep him. And so we see in one generation this defiance of God to his face. He's having a conversation with the God of the universe, and sin has so mastered him that he could say this to the living God. This did indeed escalate quickly, didn't it? In one generation, the sin of Adam and Eve has become outright defiance of God, mocking him to his face, and the murder of a brother because his brother is righteous. There's an all-out war in humanity now. God indicates here that his brother's blood is crying out from the ground. God sees everything. There's no sin that's hidden from him. And God cares about justice. He says, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. There is a price to be paid for this. There is vengeance that would be appropriate. Abel still speaks via his blood for justice. And the ground is angry at Cain because human blood has been spilled upon it. The ground was cursed in Genesis 3. And now the ground is receiving the blood of Abel, an image bearer of God, killed for being righteous. And the ground is now angry. From the ground, the blood is crying out to God and God is like, I must deal with this. He's holy. Cries out for vengeance, retribution. A divine curse is fully appropriate and it will come in full force. The curse will come hard because God cares about injustice and He is going to exact vengeance. Which brings us to the curse of verses 11 through 15. And here's what God has to say personally to Cain. Feel the weight of this. And now you are cursed. This is the first time a human being is directly cursed by God. If you go back to Genesis 3, the ground is cursed, the serpent is cursed, This is the first time where God looks at a human being, you, you, Cain, are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Just think of the imagery. The ground is opened up and swallowed the blood of your brother, and therefore you are cursed like that cursed ground. Verse 12, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. It was already cursed once that Adam was going to bring forth thorns and thistles, now, Cain, you kind of get it double. Your curse, the ground is cursed, and it's going to be even that much harder. The ground will not yield its strength to you. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And here's what Cain said, and pay attention to how he says this. Cain said to the Lord, "'My punishment is greater than I can bear. "'Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, "'and from your face I shall be hidden.'" I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So again, Genesis 3, the serpent is cursed, the ground is cursed by God, now Cain is the first human being directly under a curse from God in this direct way. Notice just the word of About the ground, you see the ground pops up, I think, seven times in this passage. That's meant to say that this cursed ground of Genesis 3 is now part condition here as well. Cain, the ground rightly hates you and will not produce for you. Unprecedented futility in work, banishment, further banishment. They're already banished from the garden. Now they're banished. He's banished even further because of his sin. Sin has mastered him, which means now he must be driven even further from God. And Cain cries out, but notice it's not in remorse, is it? He doesn't feel bad about killing his brother one lick. He doesn't care at all that he's offended God. He's crying out because he hates the consequences. Even in this face-to-face interaction with God, he's only thinking about himself. He is somehow in his own mind feels justified in what he's done. And now God is punishing him. You see how much sin has captured his heart. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the land and from your face. I will be hidden. And what if someone kills me? Are you serious? Okay. But even this self-centered cry for mercy, God does extend a mercy. Which is amazing. What if someone kills me? And God goes, no, you're mine. I will take care of vengeance. No other human beings are exact vengeance on you. You're, you're going to be mine. And he marks him. And we don't know what this mark is. Some think maybe it's a tattoo. One, one commentator actually thought maybe it was a dog to protect him. I don't know. We don't know. We don't need to know. But the point was is that it was clear to anyone who came near him, this vengeance is for God alone in this case. Don't avenge Abel's blood. I'll take care of that. You are not to take care of that, lest you get seven times the punishment that Cain gets. So even in this, God gives a certain symbol of divine protection and mercy. This mark is not a symbol of curse, it's a symbol of mercy. So that no one would exact vengeance on him. And Cain is driven from the presence of God. Even the slightest plea of mercy, God responded with some measure of mercy. Which God, even in all the anger and rage that he should rightly have, God should have here. There's still an extension of mercy to Cain, even in the midst of a curse. Which then brings us to verse 16. Two sons lost. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. Nod means wandering. A restless, unsettled, lonely place. And now think of Eve back again in verse 1. What is it like to be Eve? You and Adam sinned. God rightly punished you and yet extended a promise of grace. You've given a son and then another son and you've lost them both. One dead at the hands of another. Is there anything more terrifying to you as a parent than to think of this exact situation? One child murdered. The other child his murderer. And both of them gone from you forever forever. This is such a depressing passage. So I want to answer three questions. Question number one, why did God reject Cain's sacrifice? Is it because one offered blood and one offered grain? I don't think so. Some have speculated that that's the case. I don't think so because actually the word for offering here is referred later to a grain offering. And so and there's no indication in the text that God had given any instruction on offerings. So this is just them bringing their offering. So there's no there doesn't seem to be any indication that that means that animal sacrifices are better than grains. God's going to require both. And actually it seems like a grain offering would be entirely appropriate here. But God accepted Abel and his sacrifice because Abel comes with a right heart posture before God. He's trusting in God's promise. He's bringing his best. It says that he brings the first fruits and the fat portions. God has the first and best of Abel's offering because God has Abel's heart. Abel is trusting in the promise of God and the provision of God and with gratitude gives God his first and his best in worship. And God goes, yes, Abel, I receive you first and foremost and also your offering." Hebrews 11.4 tells us this. Hebrews 11.4, the hall of faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Salvation was by faith in Genesis 4. Faith in a promise. And Abel responded rightly with his whole self, the best that he had, the first that he had, because his heart belonged to God. Because he had faith, by faith offered to God a more pleasing accept, or a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Not because of his offering, but because of his faith. God granted him righteousness. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. God rejected Cain's sacrifice because he came with a wrong heart posture before God. He brings something that is not his first and best. Says he just brings some of the fruit of the ground. His religion is outward and self-righteous. He's just checking the box. God is a vending machine and if I put the change in I'll get what I want. God is something to be used, not someone to be trusted. Jesus indicates this in Luke 11 when he's confronting the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, he says this in Luke 50 and 51. He says, So the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished before the altar of the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be acquired of this generation. He's saying, you Pharisees have the heart of Cain. You have all this outward religion, and your heart is far from God. And then you get angry at those who do have a heart for God, and you want to kill them. In Jude 10 and 11, Jude is giving an instruction to believers about false teachers. And look at how he describes them in Jude 10 and 11. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that, way, that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! Those who pretend to be Christians, teachers of the gospel, and don't teach the true gospel, they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So there are some who look religious on the outside, but have the heart of Cain inside. And you might not be able to tell on the outside, but God does. And when God exposes it, Cain's emotions betray him, right? He is angry that someone that is less deserving than him, the Hevel boy, gets accepted. And I, the great Cain, do not because I'm not dealing with that heart. And when he's exposed, he lashes out. He lashes out in anger because his heart has been exposed and only God could see it, right? Only God could see it. And that happens with the Pharisees as well. Jesus exposes the heart of the Pharisees that no one saw before. And he says, you're just like Cain. False teachers, just like Cain. And this is the perennial human problem. Man offering something to God on his own terms in order to manipulate God. And God will have none of it. He rejects that entirely. A self-righteous worship. Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen, God says, Because these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And he begins to talk about the discipline he will bring on those who have a form of godliness but their hearts aren't in it in revelation chapter 2 god gives a warning to a church at Ephesus he says your doctrine is so good and you care so well for each other but he says you have left your first love and if you don't turn around right now I'm closing you down I don't care about all of your offerings and all your good works if you do if I do not have your heart i don't have your heart then none of it it's all garbage to me and i will close down your good doctrine good culture church if it doesn't love me i'm not interested if i don't have your heart i'm not interested and here's the thing is that it's really hard to know from the outside but god saw and cain proved god right by his actions when he was exposed when his hypocrisy was exposed he responded in anger and murder God has no interest in any worship or religious activity that does not well up from the heart. So question number 1, why did God reject Cain's sacrifice? Cain offered an accept or Abel offered an acceptable from the heart sacrifice and Cain did not. First John 3 explains that further, we'll come to that later. Question number 2, why did Cain murder his brother? Let's examine this for a moment. Let's just think about what makes a human being become a brother murderer. Let's just try to think through some of the options here that we tend to think of. Was it because he came from a broken home? No, his parents seemed to walk with God. Is it because of drugs? That's what makes someone a murderer or is addicted to something. Is it his poverty? No, the whole world is his. He's got the ability to bring offerings. Is it his race? Maybe it was radical Islam. that turned turned him into a murderer. Militant atheism? No, he's no atheist. He brings sacrifices to God. Is it something in the culture? Is it the liberal media? Guns, maybe pornography, the deep state, violent video games. Did any of that make Cain a murderer? Nothing outside of Cain made him a murderer. He was born with a sin nature inside of him. And when that was exposed, he doubled down on it, and the serpent grabbed him. Our biggest issue is not outside of us, friends. Our biggest issue is inside of us. And if we keep going after outside things, I'm not saying those things don't matter, but if we spend all of our time there, well, the snake will stay coiled at the door of our own homes and our own anger and maybe even things that we ought to be angry about will prove that sin masters us. Parents, your two biggest challenges to raising your kids is first, the cane disposition of your own heart, and second, the cane disposition in your kids' hearts. That is your biggest challenge as a parent, not the influences from the outside, which I'm not saying those don't matter, but I'm just saying you could get those exactly right. Adam and Eve seem to have got those exactly right. And Cain murdered his brother. We have to pray for the hearts of our kids. We have to pray for our own hearts. We could, get, we could live in a perfect utopia on the outside, and we would still have murderers among us. I, I think I You could have the most imperfect environment externally and still end up a murderer. And isn't that what we see in Genesis 3 and 4? It's not the environment. It's the corruption of our own hearts. And if Satan could get us sniping at the wrong enemies, or maybe not the biggest enemy, uh, then he would stay coiled at the door and we'd never even know. Adam and Eve hid when their sin was exposed. They ran from God. Cain attacked his brother. There's two different ways to deal when you're exposed. You can either try to hide and run away and pretend like God, try to hide. Or you can lash out in anger and try to justify yourself. And frankly, you and I do the same thing, don't we? If our sin is exposed, if our hearts are exposed for what they are, aren't we tempted to either run in shame and hide or lash out? Well, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what they said to me. That might be true. But our hearts are revealed, and we either hide or we attack. Someone or something exposes the dirtiness of our own souls, our wrong motives. Our desires, you do it and I do it. Don't we, don't we do this? We do this, don't we? James 4, 1 through 3 says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you are asking wrongly to spend it on your passions, which is exactly what Cain was doing. Couldn't see it on the outside, but God saw it. And Cain's response to the challenge of God in anger revealed that he was not, did not have a heart for God. And here's the reality. There are Cain's and Abel's in the world, and there are Cain's and Abel's in every church. There always have been, there always will be. Notice the situation is surfaced in a worship service. You notice that? They're both offering, they're both bringing an offering in worship. This is not out there in the big bad world. This is a worship service where this is happening. Cain is not an atheist. This exact situation short of murder will happen 10,000 times in the life of a church where the hearts of Cain will be exposed by the humble worship of the Abel's. The true-hearted, the pure-motivated worshiper will come in, seated right next to the self-righteous, self-centered worshiper. Outwardly, most of the time, we'll never be able to tell the difference until the pure-hearted gets a grace that they don't deserve and the self-righteous doesn't get the same grace that he thought he deserved. He'll get angry. Read your Bibles, Joseph and his brothers. Later in Genesis. Joseph gets a gift from his father and his brothers hatch a plan to murder him and send him into bondage. Heart of Cain, heart of Abel. Saul and David. God chooses David to be the next king because he has a righteous heart. And Saul tries to kill him. Jonah and Nineveh. God tells Jonah to go and preach a message of repentance and warning to the Ninevites, these brutal Assyrians. They're nasty people who deserve the wrath of God. And then when God gives mercy to the undeserving, Jonah loses his mind. The same word for anger here is the same word that Jonah. When he's standing on the hillside waiting for God to rain down wrath on Nineveh, and God goes, they repented. What are you mad about? He's self-righteous in his heart. The rich man in Lazarus in Luke 16 The Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like this man, a sinner. God, thank you that I'm not like those dirty people. And the tax collector in the back goes, God, please just have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one walks away justified? Not the heart of Cain, Pharisee, the heart of Abel, tax collector, who's broken before God. Think of even the early church in the book of Acts. Barnabas comes and brings a gift, a generous gift to the church at the end of Acts chapter 4. At the beginning of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira come, and they want to bring a big gift too. But it's under a certain pretense. They want it to seem like it's more than it actually was. And God strikes them dead. No one would know, except God exposed their hearts, and they were dead on the spot, the heart of Cain. They're not coming to please God. They're coming to gain a standing for themselves. Think of the rich and poor at the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, and God strikes some of them dead because some of the rich are having their own Lord's Supper. They don't want poor people there. So God strikes some of them dead. No one would know. And ultimately, the Pharisees and scribes versus Jesus. Isn't Jesus the righteous one who is killed by the religious leaders of the? The Pharisees see that Jesus is exposing their hearts, that they have the heart of Cain, And their response is not to respond in Jesus in repentance and faith. You're right. We should get our hearts right before God. The Messiah is in our midst. They see the raising of Lazarus from the dead and they go, We got to kill both of them now. They're so entrapped by their sin. And their religious deeds are exposed and they murder Jesus. They murder Jesus. Your whole Bible is full of this seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, the righteous being attacked. By what seemed to be righteous at first, but then attacked. The older brother and the prodigal son. The prodigal son receives a grace from the father, and the older brother is livid. He's angry that God would give grace to someone lesser than him, someone who doesn't deserve it. Maybe like Cain, you bring service to God on your own terms when it's convenient for you. Maybe worship is just something you do when you have time. Maybe time with God is just something that sort of fits in when you can get it in there. Abel gave God his first and his best because God had his heart. Cain checked the boxes to try to get some credit, to try to get some prestige, to try to use God for his own purposes. And when God wouldn't play, he would take his toys and go home. Or he would attack those who are righteous. Question three. Is God's promise dead? Two sons are dead. That's it, right? Abel was the promised one. He was the begotten one. Turns out maybe Abel's more godly. Okay, we got two good options here. One kills the other. Promise is dead. Seed of a woman, impossible. No. No. Skip down in chapter 4 to verse 25 and 26. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. You can just imagine the tears in her eyes as she thinks about her boys and what has become of them and the guilt that she must feel in her own heart of like, I opened the door to this thing. And yet, she sees the kindness of God, right? Even in her grief and pain, disappointment, God gave us another seed. Maybe the promise still lives. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Oh, wait a minute. The promise still lives. In the burned out wreckage of Genesis chapter 4, it closes with a, no, there's still a little shoot. There's still a little piece of hope. And if you go to Luke chapter 3, in verse 25, it begins to unfold the genealogy of Jesus. And it closes, it starts with Jesus and works its way back in time. And you get to Luke chapter 3, verse 38. And it says, The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You no, know, the line lives. The promise is still in effect. And the rest of your Bible is going to trace this promise in all of the places that it gets threatened. Seems like it's over, seems like they've been disqualified, seems like God has given up. And you're going to land in Luke chapter 3. And Luke is going to go, look, the promise of Genesis 3, a seed of a woman that will come. Who will crush the head of the serpent, reverse the curse, and save mankind came through Seth. God kept his promise. It's not over. There is righteous one. And Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 tells us this. Well, look at this. It says to these Christians who are coming out of Judaism, they become Christians, and now they're being persecuted, and there's a temptation to kind of leave the Jesus thing and go back to Judaism. And the whole book of Hebrews is, is this argument of like, don't go back to the shadow lands, this is the promised one. And he just reminds them if they've come to Jesus, they've come to the full fulfillment of the Old Testament. And look at what he says in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. He says, you've come to Mount Zion, To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Jesus is better than Old Testament rules and regulations and rituals, as good as those are. They were all meant to point you to Jesus. You've come to the real thing. You've come out of the shadows into the real thing. And to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And look at what he says. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of who? Of Abel. What did Abel's blood cry out? Vengeance for sin. There's another righteous one who will be wrongly killed by his brothers. And his blood will hit the ground. And what will cry out? Pardon for sinners. One cries out vengeance, rightly. The other one, spilled, cries out. Mercy to all who will trust in it. A better word. Vengeance. God will get everything right, but that's bad news for sinners because we're part of the thing that should be eliminated from the world because we have sin in us. But the better word is not just that God is going to execute justice on sin and sinners, but he's also going to execute that justice by means of his own son dying on the cross that all who trust in him will be cleansed of sin themselves and receive the mercy of God. So, bottom line, your heart posture before God is the only thing that ultimately matters. I don't, care about your, I don't care about your upbringing. I don't care about the awful things that you've done. I don't care about the great things you've done. The only thing that matters is your heart posture before God. Is it one like Abel's full of faith in the promise of God revealed in Jesus Christ? Or is it like Cain's, looking good on the outside, but really just self-righteous, and not full of faith? Second point is essentially that. Because of the fall, your natural heart position, your natural heart posture, the way you're born, resembles Cain's. You're a legalist at heart. You want to earn your own salvation. You think you're justified in the way that you treat people, in the way that you act. You don't think there's anything wrong with you. That's our natural heart posture. Until we put our trust in the promises of God. Acknowledge that we have sin crouching at our door that will seek to master us if we don't put it to death. We must be killing sin or sin will kill us. And like Abel, trust in the promises of God by faith will be declared righteous and received because God has our heart and we're trusting in him. In all of this, Abel had just this one little phrase to put his faith in. We have a whole Bible in history that shows that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. You have so much more evidence of the faithfulness of God than Abel did. Abel had a right heart posture before God and he trusted in the promise. You have seen that promise worked out if you know your Bible. Why would you not trust in him? Why would you not trust in him? And here, this might be unexpected to you, but the third is this. Your righteous life, if you have a right heart posture before God and you're worshiping him with your whole heart, you're bringing him your first and your best, you're loving him with all your heart, and when you're corrected, you don't get angry like Cain, you, you repent and you confess and you want the joy of walking rightly with God. When you get it wrong you, and you're confronted, you don't run and hide and you don't attack, but you draw all the closer. When that happens... When you're receiving grace, your righteous life, flowing with generosity from a pure heart to please God, will draw out the wrath of the Cain's among us. You do know that, right? If you're not a Christian, you really ought to know this. If you decide to follow Jesus from the heart, you will be attacked by the Cain's. You will. Read your Bibles. Joseph was attacked by his brothers. David was attacked by Saul. Paul was attacked by Jewish leaders. Just every one of them. The godly will suffer. Don't let that throw you off. You keep worshiping God from a pure heart, even if it's your blood that gets shed. God revealed the heart of Cain and Abel. God is still revealing the hearts of the Cains and the Abels today. And the reality is, which one are we? And when the undeserving receive grace, those with the heart of Abel, heart of faith, will rejoice. And those with the heart of Cain will get angry. I went to a pastor's conference once and a pastor said, I don't put anyone in leadership until I've seen what they're like angry. So I try to make them angry, try to offend them in some way. Because what they do when they don't get what they think they deserve, when they feel they're wronged, will tell you what their heart is. And do not put an angry person in leadership. Don't put an angry, do not put Cain in leadership and you won't be able to tell until in some way they feel slighted. And do they fold their arms and back up? Do they slander and complain? Do they withdraw? Well, it's the heart of Cain. But if in some way they feel wrong and they draw nearer going, okay, what what can I do to please the Lord? What can I do to serve? I feel slighted, but I'm going to draw nearer because of it. Oh, now you have the heart, I think, of Abel. So to the Abels out there, your pure-hearted worship and service to God will get you attacked. It's not going to be fair. It's going to be a means by which God surfaces who the Cain's are. And you might pay the price for Cain's anger, but don't let that deter you from pleasing God with all of your heart. Don't let it change your heart for your brother, continue to love. First John 3 and 1 Peter 2, I will close with these two passages. I'll just read these and then we'll close. First John 3, 8, 11 through 18, we read this earlier, but now in light of walking through this passage, I want you to hear it now. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's how you can know. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. Love is dying for your brother, not killing him. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's how you know who the Christians are. They don't kill their brothers. They die for them. If anyone has the world goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So he takes from this big, like, die for your brother thing, and oh, I mean die in, like, the little ways, too. Like, if he has a need, meet it. Not just the big, glorious death. I would die for my wife. Well... Maybe I should just do the dishes. Maybe die a little bit. We die in the little ways, too, for each other. That's how you know who the Christians are. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but indeed in deed and truth. And then look at this, First Peter 2, 1, 21 through 25. So if you're going to be like Abel, worship God from a pure heart, you're going to get attacked. You just are going to get attacked. And I think this is a helpful reminder. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What do you do when you're attacked? Well, Jesus gives you a model. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly the one who hears the blood of Abel and will get it right in the end. And he'll get it right for you too if you're unjustly treated. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Who is Abel's keeper? God is. And while Abel died for his righteousness, God does keep him. And God will keep you no matter what you go through. Trust in him. Trust in him for salvation. Come to him with a pure heart. Give him your first and your best. Love him from the heart no matter what it costs. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. And this weird story that's mega tragic has so much to teach us. God, I pray that you would expose our hearts right now before you. And God, we would know. I pray that you would reveal our hearts to us, that you, like Cain, would look us in the eyes and go, if, you will not, if, you will, if you'll do right, I will accept you. But don't forget, sin is crouching at your door, God. And may we learn from the awful decision Cain made and not make the same mistake ourselves. God, don't let us run away with our emotions. Help us not to follow our hearts into sin. Help us to hear the voice of God and trust in faith in the promise of Jesus Christ and love our brothers, and die for our brothers. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.